January 3, 1980, at around 7.15 p.m., Peter Mawson, the personal assistant to wildlife conservationist Joy Adamson, sat in camp after supper and read. With him was the cook, Kifosha. As Kifosha was lighting the lamps, he mentioned to Peter that Joy Adamson hadn't returned from her nightly walk around the camp. He was a bit worried. It was getting dark, and Joy was usually back by now. Peter joked that perhaps she had finally been eaten by lions. However, Peter saw the time, and he too thought something might be amiss. He hopped into the camp's Toyota pickup truck and drove down the road knowing exactly the route Joy always took. He only had to drive 200 yards before he made the discovery. Lying face down in a pool of blood was Joy Adamson. Cut down at the age of 69, her murderer was nowhere to be found. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Every week, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. Welcome to Assassinations on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second and final episode on Joy Adamson, the wildlife conservationist who was murdered by a disgruntled ex-employee. Last week, we explored the history of hunting in Africa and Joy's journey into the field of conservation. This week, we'll explore the aftermath of her murder and the legacy she left behind, as well as what may have happened if she hadn't been assassinated. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Peter Mawson stared down at his boss's lifeless body. He quietly called out her name, but it was met with silence. Panic overtook him. He quickly got back into the truck and reversed, but his nerves got the better of him and he accidentally got stuck in some mud. He was forced to hop out of the truck and run back into camp. He cried out for Kifosha. When he finally got to the old cook, they got into Joy's station wagon and drove back to the body. Kifosha was in shock. All he could say was, Mem Sahib Nakufa, Mem Sahib is dead. Mem Sahib was a term used for foreign white women. The two men inspected the body to make sure that Joy was, in fact, dead. Peter spotted a large bloody cut running across her left arm. He concluded that Joy must have been mauled by a lion. The joke he had just made minutes earlier was no longer very funny. Peter drove back to camp to fetch a blanket to wrap Joy's body in. He also grabbed a rifle and some ammunition in case the lion returned. While he was at camp, he noticed that the lamps that Kifosha had just lit were now out. Strange as it was, Peter knew that was the least of his troubles. He quickly returned to Kifosha, and together the two men gently wrapped Joy's body in the blanket and placed her in the back seat of the station wagon. 
Peter planned to take Joy to the closest town, Isiolo, which is a little over 50 kilometers away. Kifosha stayed behind at the camp to guard against any more intrusion. Before leaving, Peter gave Kifosha the rifle and ammunition. Alone and afraid, he began to inspect the rest of the camp and soon made some very odd discoveries. Two gates at the back of the camp into the animal enclosure, normally bolted shut by Joy, were completely open. Kifosha closed the inner one, but the outer gate which led to the bush and the dark abyss remained open. Fear stopped him from going out to close it. He then went to Joy's tent and discovered that her tin trunk had been broken into. Papers and notes were thrown all over the place, and several valuables were missing. Even more strangely, a car battery from one of the pickup trucks was missing as well. Meanwhile, Peter rushed down the dirt road in the station wagon. Low on fuel, he stopped at the house of Roy Wallace, his one-time drinking companion. The hysterical Peter told Roy that Joy had been attacked by a lion. Roy inspected Joy's body and found it odd that there wasn't any blood on her face. If Joy had been attacked by a lion, her whole body would be covered in blood. But when the pair finally finished the journey to Isiolo, the initial inspection of Joy's body by the police doctor seemed to confirm Peter's theory. Two large cuts were found on Joy's arm, and a third was found on the side of her body. This was enough for the doctor to believe that a lion was responsible. It didn't take long for word to spread about Joy's untimely death by a lion attack. The BBC World News made it a main story the next day. The very creature that Joy raised awareness for ended up being responsible for her death. Internationally, everyone seemed to buy the lion explanation, even in the absence of evidence. It took one journalist almost a week to even confirm the original reports that came out of Kenya about Joy's death. Despite the world's acceptance that the culprit was a lion, local authorities found it a hard pill to swallow. Three clean wounds were not enough to indicate a lion attack. Something seemed wrong. While Joy's body was taken to the Maru Hospital's mortuary, Chief Inspector Gichunge went on to Joy's camp the next morning on January 4th. He was one of the earliest to suspect foul play. Gichunge took the still-shocked Peter with him, as well as other police investigators. While searching the campgrounds, they discovered Joy's walking stick and examined the blood patches on the ground. Given how little blood there was, it was hard to believe that a lion was responsible. They then searched Joy's tent and discovered a crowbar near a smashed-up metal box. Upon further inspection, they discovered shoe prints on the ground. They followed the shoe prints and were led to the animal enclosure gates, the ones that Kifosha discovered were open after the murder. An old associate of Joy's, Peter Jenkins, was called in to help with the investigation. Jenkins was the game warden of Maru National Park, where Joy and George had rehabilitated Elsa. His years of working with the Adamsons and as a game warden made him an expert on lion attacks. Jenkins set out looking for signs of lions in and around the surrounding area, but they couldn't find anything that would indicate a lion had been near the camp within the past few days. 
Jenkins then went to the mortuary to inspect Joy's body. Having seen his fair share of lion attacks, he immediately concluded that a lion was not responsible for Joy's death. The cut marks didn't match the typical signs. On January 5th, doctors in Maru agreed. They concluded that Joy's death did not come at the hands of a lion. The wound in the side of her body was eight inches deep, and together with the two deep cuts on her arm, the doctors believed that a sharp object, like a dagger, was responsible. Joy's death was officially ruled a homicide. When Joy's second husband, Peter Bali, learned of her death, he allegedly said that the whole world mourns Joy, except her three husbands. George Adamson would disagree. Despite their contentious and sometimes violent relationship, George still loved his estranged wife, and he felt guilty that in the previous weeks, he was unable to spend Christmas with her like they normally did. George had made a promise to Joy that if she were to die before him, he would sprinkle her ashes over the graves of Elsa the lioness and Pippa the cheetah. Because of this promise, Joy's funeral was held at the crematorium in Nairobi within days of the murder. In his diary, George Adamson recalled, Her funeral was simple and quiet. None of Joy's oldest or closest friends were there that day, for they were either dead or in Europe. But old friends of mine, friends of Joy's later years, Austrian, English, and Kenyan, and friends of the wild animals and their country to whom she had given so much, were present. After the funeral, George took Joy's ashes and flew to Maru. He scattered some of the ashes over Pippa's grave marker, then buried the rest at Elsa's gravesite. In the nearly 70 years that she spent on this earth, the happiest Joy ever was was when she cared for Elsa. Now she was finally able to spend eternity with her. Meanwhile, the investigation into Joy's killer was underway and the police had a short list of possible suspects. They immediately guessed that the assassin was a former or current employee. It was well known that Joy got into loud and public spats with her workers. She gave them all enough motive to do the deed. Peter Mawson was the first suspect. During intense interrogation, the investigators grilled the assistant about his contentious relationship with his boss. It was well known that Peter and Joy rarely got along. Joy had aired her frustrations to her friends just days before her death, and Peter was the one who discovered the body alone. The rest of Joy's current and former employees were individually interrogated, and each one, by the end of the questioning, was cleared. However, one man seemed to be missing, Paul Ekai. In the weeks leading up to the assassination, Ekai had been living at his parents' manyata near Isiolo. Manyatas are groups of huts, usually temporary, that consist of a single family or clan. On January 6th, police finally learned where Ekai was staying and came to the manyata to speak with him. According to court records, Ekai fled as soon as he heard the police coming. He managed to evade capture and vanished into the wilderness. After escaping the police, Ekai traveled to the town of Baragoy. Baragoy stands roughly 200 miles from Isiolo, near Lake Turkana, 
formerly known as Lake Rudolph. The population consists mostly of people from the Turkana tribe, meaning Akai, a Turkana himself, would have been able to blend in perfectly. For nearly a month, Akai managed to stay off the police's radar, but that changed on February 2nd. That evening, Baragoy police were called by three men who claimed to have been attacked by bandits. When the police arrested the group of bandits in question, they discovered that one of them was Paul Nakwari Ekai. Ekai dutifully gave his name and handed the police sergeant his identification paperwork. The sergeant remembered hearing that name back at the police station. Ekai was on a wanted list provided by the police in Isiolo. When they returned to the police station, the sergeant informed the Isiolo police that they had found Akai. After a month of hiding, Joy's assassin was in custody. Coming up, Paul Akai confesses to the murder of Joy Adamson, only to recant once his trial begins. Now, back to the story. On February 3rd, 1980, Exactly a month after the murder of Joy Adamson, Paul Akai, one of the prime suspects, was finally in custody. Senior Superintendent Ngansira of the Isiolo Police interrogated Akai for, according to the court files, 10 minutes. Within those 10 minutes, Akai denied any involvement in Joy's death. He claimed to have no knowledge as to how or why it happened. That night, according to Akai, four police inspectors, including Ngansira, took him two miles outside of Isiolo into a deserted area. They lit a fire, ordered Akai to strip naked, and told him to confess to killing, quote, that old woman. Akai refused. The police then kicked Akai repeatedly in the stomach and in the head, demanding that he confess to the murder. When he still refused, they took an iron rod, heated it in the fire, and burned parts of his body. Akai later claimed that string was tied tightly around his testicles and that he was whipped repeatedly. Akai was beaten until he lost consciousness. He woke up at around 4 a.m. inside Ngansira's office. Before him were several sheets of paper that amounted to a full confession. He was forced to sign the documents. All four police officers denied having tortured Akai into confessing. However, it is hard to deny the fact that after his arrest, Akai was suddenly missing some teeth and had a split in his mouth. Akai's signed confession answered the mysterious questions that surrounded the crime scene after Peter Mawson and Kifosha discovered Joy's body. According to the document, he stabbed Joy in a fit of rage after she accused him of being responsible for the robberies that had occurred in the camp. Afterwards, Akai threw the simi, a type of dagger, into the nearby swamp. He quietly made his way into camp and extinguished the lamps that Kifosha had just lit. Despite having access to the proper technology, the police failed to test the lamps for fingerprints so there was no evidence to either corroborate or contradict this statement. Akai then made his way into Joy's tent, knowing exactly where the tin trunk was and knowing what was inside. 
While attempting to break into the trunk, Ekai was interrupted by Peter Mawson. Peter, who had just discovered Joy's body, was in the process of retrieving the rifle and blanket to wrap Joy's body. In his panicked state, Peter completely missed Akai and left without seeing him. Once Peter left, Akai made his way to the bush and hid there until Kifosha returned. When the time was right, he dashed out of the camp. But not before stopping at the pickup truck and stealing the car battery. Akai knew that batteries were valuable and he could eventually sell it in Isiolo. He walked home in the darkness and hid the battery under a tree along the way. After his confession, the police took Akai to the Shaba camp and had him point out exactly where the items mentioned in his confession were located. Akai took them to the swamp where he allegedly threw the simi, but the police were unable to find it in the muddy water. Next, Akai took the police two miles outside the camp where he hid the car battery. The battery was successfully identified by the supplier and by Peter. Akai then took the police to a manyata near Daba and showed them a knife similar to the one he claimed to have used to kill Joy. Then he took them to his sister's house and handed over a haversack containing some of the items that had been stolen from Joy and Peter's trunks back on December 10th. Bloodstains, later revealed to belong to Joy, were also found on the haversack. On February 5th, Akai was officially charged with the murder of Joy Adamson. He was then taken to the Isiolo District Hospital, where he was examined by two doctors identified in court documents as Dr. Mwaniki and Dr. Giltrap. In his deposition, Mwaniki testified that during this examination, Ekai stripped naked and showed no signs of injury outside of old scars on his chest and abdomen. According to the doctor, during the initial examination, Akai denied sustaining any injuries while in police custody. The scars in question, Mwaniki proclaimed, were traditional beauty marks and therapeutic or treatment marks. 20 weeks later, Akai was examined again by one Dr. Ngatia. Ngatia disagreed that the scars on Akai's body were tribal marks. In his opinion, they were whip or cane marks. Ngatia also noted that Akai was missing his left lower incisor tooth and that his testicles were swollen and tender. This evidence would later be used to argue that Akai's confession was coerced. Despite Akai's full and signed confession, many still believe that Peter Mawson played a role in the murder. Roy Wallace firmly believed that Peter had ordered or encouraged Akai to do the deed and split the profits from whatever Akai stole from Joy's tent. The local police seemed to be suspicious of Peter as well and were ready to charge him with incitement of murder. However, outside investigators advised against it and Peter was never arrested. As word spread that Akai had been arrested for Joy's death, many of the locals weren't surprised. The rest of the world may have been shocked, but those who knew Joy saw it as fitting that she was killed by one of her many mistreated employees. In her biography on Joy Adamson, Carolyn Cass notes that an unnamed but very well-known Kenyan man who knew Joy closely 
hated the way she treated the Africans on her staff. The man even wrote a letter on behalf of Akai, defending his actions, and offered to give evidence of Joy's rudeness towards her workers. Paul Akai's preliminary hearing took place in June of 1980, but the trial itself didn't begin until almost a full year later in May 1981. During the three-month trial that followed, Akai retracted his confession and claimed that it was coerced through torture. According to Akai, the reason he ran when he saw the police on January 6th wasn't because he feared being arrested for Joy's murder. Rather, the previous day, he had gotten into an argument with his brother Gabriel, and Gabriel had threatened to call the police. His alibi for the days leading up to the murder was that he was staying at his Aunt Rebecca's house in Kulamawe, a small town near Isiolo. Aunt Rebecca testified that her nephew stayed with her from January 1st to January 6th and didn't leave the house at all on the day of the murder because he was suffering from malaria. Judge Matthew Mooley dismissed this alibi as a fabrication since investigators had discerned that Akai was living with his parents in the days leading up to and after Joy's death. The defense tried to cast blame on Peter Mawson as the culprit. They claimed that he had a much better motive to kill Joy, as he was an even bigger target for Joy's horrendous treatment, and it was well known that the two's relationship was contentious. But the defense ultimately fell on deaf ears. On August 29, 1981, Paul Ekai was convicted of Joy Adamson's murder. It was a crime that should have carried a death sentence, but a dispute regarding Ekai's age saved him from being hung. Birth records weren't kept meticulously in Kenya, and all the court could discern was that he was somewhere between the ages of 17 and 20. Because it was impossible to prove that he was over the age of 18 when the crime was committed, the death penalty couldn't be applied. Instead, he was sentenced to prison for a length of time that the president of Kenya saw fit. It's unclear if the length of Akai's sentence was decided before he was sent to Embu prison or if he would simply remain there indefinitely until the president decided to pardon him. Either way, Akai had no intention of waiting around. Akai immediately appealed the conviction in the months that followed. His lawyers continued to argue that Akai's confession was coerced via torture. They pointed out that the alleged murder weapon was never found, suggesting the entire story about the dagger thrown in the swamp was a fabrication. During the trial, the police and prosecution had insisted on using the knife that Akai pointed to at the Manyara on February 6th as evidence. Even though the actual murder weapon was never recovered from the swamp, the fact that Akai had a similar one in his possession meant that he could have easily used another one to kill Joy. But during the appeal, the defense argued that the knife in question wouldn't have caused wounds similar to Joy's. Instead, the defense continued to push the theory that Joy was attacked by a lion or another animal. Akai's motive was also called into question. The signed confession had said that money was the motive. Akai killed Joy over a wage dispute regarding his work in December 1979. The defense produced a ledger 
showing Ekai's signature confirming that he had received payment by Peter Mawson in December, thus proving that the motive in his confession statement was false. However, the same ledger is missing Ekai's signature for November. When pressed on this, Akai said that Peter Mawson actually did pay him for that month. He just never signed the ledger. Peter couldn't recall whether he paid Akai his November wages or not, so the money dispute motive still resonated with the courts. For every piece of evidence Akai and his lawyers threw at the appeals court, the prosecution had an explanation of their own. Nothing was enough to overturn the conviction. On November 17th, 1981, Ekai's appeal was denied. His time in prison would last almost three decades. Ekai, for the majority of his prison sentence, was not allowed to talk to the press or give interviews. However, by the mid-2000s, for reasons unexplained, he was allowed to speak, and in his first interviews, he gave contradicting accounts as to whether or not he was responsible for Joy's death. In a 2004 interview, the first he was allowed to give since being imprisoned, Ekai claimed that he did, in fact, kill Joy. However, in this version of the story, Ekai says that he shot Joy during their argument, not that he stabbed her. What started as a quarrel led to Joy shooting at Ekai, and he retaliated by shooting back. However, Joy's autopsy report didn't indicate a bullet wound. A year later, Ekai contradicted himself and returned to proclaiming his innocence. But once again, some of the facts don't line up with the evidence. Ekai says he was arrested while visiting a police station to file a report, when in fact, he was identified after being arrested by police in Baragoy. On May 27, 2009, Paul Ekai was released from prison and given a presidential pardon. It's unclear why he was suddenly pardoned, but after spending nearly 30 years of life behind bars, Akai, now in his early 50s, was one of the longest-serving prisoners in Kenya. In two more interviews, one after his release in 2009 and one in 2011 as he visited Joy's grave, Akai tells the reporters that he viewed Joy as a mother. In these articles, he's painted as a broken man, a sacrificial lamb who was chosen to take the fall for the unexplained high-profile murder. Akai's current whereabouts are unknown. Since 2011, the world hasn't heard a word from Joy Adamson's assassin. But Joy's legacy has continued to reverberate. When we return, we'll explore the lasting legacy of Joy's work and we'll consider what may have happened if Joy hadn't been killed on January 3rd, 1980. Now, back to the story. Huangge National Park in northwestern Zimbabwe is home to some of the world's most majestic creatures. Visitors from all over the world come to Huangge to see the great stature of the African elephant, the gallantry of the zebra, and the diverse collection of birds who call the grasslands home. But the creature that garners the most attention is the king of the jungle, the lion. Since 1999, the Oxford University's Wild Crew Research Unit has used GPS tracking devices 
to study the movements and behavior of Wangay National Park's lions. On the evening of July 1, 2015, researchers noticed that one of the lions at Wangay wandered outside of the park. This was strange since this particular lion had called Wangay home for 12 years. While walking along a dirt path, the lion had caught the scent of meat and went to investigate, leading him away from the park. His nose led him to a dead elephant, prime and ready to be eaten. As the lion began to feast on the carcass, it was suddenly struck by an arrow. For the next 10 to 12 hours, the mortally wounded lion barely moved. According to its GPS tracker, the lion only traveled roughly 350 meters, clinging on to life. At around 9 a.m. the next morning, it was struck by another arrow. This one finished the job and put Cecil the lion out of his misery. Cecil's body was taken to the hunter's camp where it was skinned and beheaded. A few days later, Cecil's remains were found just outside of the protected national park. It didn't take long for investigators to pin Minnesota dentist Walter Palmer as the lion's killer and for angry protesters to target him. We are Cecil! We are Cecil! We are The incident sparked international outrage. Late-night talk show hosts urged viewers to donate money to wildlife conservation organizations. Countries around the world tightened their laws in regards to trophy hunting. France and Australia banned the practice altogether. In Africa, several countries already had bans on trophy hunting, including Kenya, the former home of Joy and George Adamson. And despite the Adamson's decades of work and the efforts of the international community, Cecil's home, as reported by National Geographic, actually saw an upswing in sport hunting in the following two years. Hunting in Africa, whether legal or illegal, has always been an issue. But had it not been for Joy Adamson, who worked to change the lion's perception from fearsome beast to endangered friend, the outrage over the death of Cecil the lion may not have been so loud. Through her work, Joy inspired hundreds to engage in wildlife conservation. Famous names like Ian Douglas Hamilton, David Attenborough, and Jane Goodall can all list Joy as one of the main inspirations for their choice of work. Since Joy's death, conservation efforts have increased exponentially. In 1984, the stars of the film adaptation of Born Free, William Travers and Virginia McKenna, created what would eventually be known as the Born Free Foundation. Directly inspired by Joy's work, the Foundation's mission and purpose states, quote, we work tirelessly to ensure that all wild animals, whether living in captivity or in the wild, are treated with compassion and respect and are able to live their lives according to their needs. Alongside the Born Free Foundation, Organizations like the World Wild Fund for Nature, the Nature Conservancy, Wildlife Conservation Society, and many more have been created to raise money and bring awareness to all sorts of endangered and threatened wildlife. In recent years, documentaries and series like March of the Penguins, Planet Earth, and African Cats have dedicated their resources to showing wildlife's majesty to the masses, much like Joy did through her books.
But conservation has always been a controversial topic within the African community. Many of the locals saw it as another example of colonial intrusion and oppression, especially within rural communities. The establishment of national parks, though well-intentioned, means the removal of indigenous people from their land. In the 1980s, after Joy's death, a new theory known as community-based conservation gained popularity in Africa. This was an attempt to engage more with the local indigenous communities, who knew the land better than foreign scientists and conservationists. But this new approach did little to stop the violence that's surrounded poaching and conservation for decades, especially in Kenya. Kenya's eastern edge is bordered by Somalia. During the British colonial period, the region's land was divided and redistributed at will by European governments. And once the British dissolved their East African colonies in the 1960s, violent territorial disputes broke out between Kenya and Somalia. The hostility between the two nations affected conservation issues since many poachers in the area were Somalian and it was the Kenyan Game Department leading the fight against illegal hunting. After Joy's death, George Adamson continued to work at the Kora National Reserve, keeping his focus on stopping poachers. This made him an enemy of the Somalis, so much so that they put a bounty on his head. On August 20, 1989, tensions came to a head when George's camp in Kora was ambushed by Somali bandits. George's assistant and some tourists were attacked, and when George came to the rescue, the bandits turned their focus to him. For decades, George had built a reputation as a swaggering English adventurer, someone from the novels of Joseph Conrad or the B-movie serials of the 1940s. In the end, he died as any Hollywood adventure hero would have. After George's death, the Kenyan government ramped up its efforts to battle poachers. The Kenyan Wildlife Service was established and the game department's rangers were retrained and rearmed. Ultimately, the rangers have managed to drive out the bulk of poacher activity. Had George not been killed, it's easy to imagine him, even in his old age, battling alongside the African rangers as the 20th century drew to a close. And if Joy had still been alive, she surely would have had a place in the fight as well. One has to wonder how much more she could have done if she'd had a few more years. At the time of her death, Joy was still in the process of editing and illustrating her book about Penny the Leopard. It was posthumously published and called Queen of Shaba, a title that she first mentioned in a letter to her editor just four days before her death. Joy would have also continued traveling the world and speaking on behalf of conservation. Despite her age tiring her out, as Peter Mawson noted the day she died, Joy would have more than likely taken on another big cat project as well. She was happiest when she was working hands-on with wildlife. For all the good that Joy did, she was a tough person to work for, and given what we know, it isn't hard to imagine that she would have continued to treat her employees and locals poorly. It's doubtful her stubbornness and hot temper would have subsided with old age. It's hard to tell exactly what would have happened with Joy and George Adamson's relationship. 
More than likely, it would have stayed the same. While the pair had a tense and toxic marriage, their similar goals of wildlife conservation allowed them to work well as partners. Whether or not they would have fully reconciled and lived together again is difficult to predict. But had Joy and George reconciled, George's death at the hands of Somali bandits could have been avoided. Even though George was a man from a different era, an old soul adventurer, Joy might have cautioned him away from being so stubborn when it came to the Somali issue. And what of the assassin himself, Paul Akai? What if, on the night of January 3rd, Paul was able to end the dispute without violence? Given the little information that we know about Akai and the murder itself, it's tough to say. Akai was young, only between 17 and 20. Had he not decided, in that moment, to strike down his former boss, he may have just disappeared in the bush and found different employment elsewhere. Or he might have continued his pattern of petty robbery and eventually ended up behind bars for a different reason. Instead of spending three decades of his life in prison, Ekai may have returned to his parents' home on a more permanent basis. Down the road, he may have gotten married and started a family of his own. In truth, he would have been just like any other citizen, trying to find his place in the rapidly changing Kenyan culture. Like the big cats she spent the last 20 years of her life protecting, Joy Adamson was a fierce and strong person. Her determination helped begin a conservation movement that has continued to this day. But her combative nature made her a multitude of enemies and eventually led to her death. When Joy fell head over heels for the little cub that became Elsa the lioness, no one imagined the impact their relationship would have on the world. While it's hard to discount her abrasive attitude toward her employees and the local Africans, Joy's work on its own deserves to be remembered for inspiring others to join the cause. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Assassinations was written by Joe Guerra and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>